Welcome to Copyright Clearance Center's podcast series. I'm Christopher Keneally for Beyond the Book. It's Friday, October 26, 2018. Our weekly guest on the show is Andrew Albanese, Publishers Weekly senior writer, who joins me today from PW's editorial offices in New York City. Welcome back, Andrew. Hey there, Chris. So we haven't even reached Halloween yet, but on Monday, Publishers Weekly unveils its reckoning on the year's best books. That's right. It's a huge issue for us here at Publishers Weekly. And I I have to offer a hearty salute to the reviews team here at Publishers Weekly, which I'm sure has had very little sleep in the past few weeks as they've winnowed down the literally thousands of books that we review every year to offer a selection of the best books uh, across a wide range of categories. And the list is just out this morning, and I won't go over all the selections here except to announce that Our top book of 2018 is a rather unique choice. It's a novel called Insurrecto by Gina Apostol, who graces our cover this week. Uh, And what's unique about it is that the book isn't even out yet. It actually hits the shelves on November 13th. And I think it's a testament to just how good the book is that it can top the 2018 fiction crop, which is a pretty strong field, despite only coming out in November at the very end of the year. Indeed, that's quite a trick, Andrew. Gina Apostol was born and raised in the Philippines, and she earned a master's degree in creative writing at Johns Hopkins University. Her novel, Gun Dealer's Daughter, won the 2013 Penn Open Book Award. Maybe it's no surprise, then, that Insurrecto is a good read, but what makes it the best of the year? Well, I'll just tell you what our editors had to say about it, and the phrase that they used was, it's a pyrotechnical marvel. Uh, I love that phrase, actually. Uh, The plot is rooted in the Philippine-American War, and it unspools over decades across the globe, and it raises questions about class, about conquest, about who gets to tell history. You know, and the minute our fiction editor, Gabe Habash, finished reading it, he was convinced that it was at least best books material, and he was quickly backed up by others on the staff here, and turns out it's our top book. Uh, of course, Apostol's novel is joined by a fantastic array of fiction and nonfiction titles. You know, of the thousands of books that we review every year, the editors picked the 100 best adult titles and the 50 best for children and teens, and you really can't go wrong with any of the books on this list. It's especially useful for your holiday shopping. Uh, So go ahead and hit the Publishers Weekly site and enjoy. It's a really special feature and uh, an annual reminder, I think, of the strength of the publishing industry, the strength of storytelling, and and really just how special an industry we have the privilege of working in. When Copyright Clearance and Beyond the Book returns, Andrew Albanese offers analysis on the latest developments in the copyright infringement lawsuit against Georgia State University. I'm Christopher Keneally with Copyright Clearance Center's Beyond the Book. Publishers Weekly Radio has the very best in book talk directly from New York City, the heart of the book publishing world. I'm Mark Rotella, Senior Editor at Publishers Weekly. And I'm Rose Fox. I'm a Senior Reviews Editor at Publishers Weekly. Join us every Friday for a full hour of exciting author interviews, best-selling books, and expert reports on the nuts and bolts of publishing. Every week, we make sure that you have the inside story of your favorite story. Take a listen at publishersweekly.com slash pwradio. I'm Christopher Keneally for CCC's Beyond the Book. It's Friday, October 26th, 2018, and Andrew Albanese of Publishers Weekly joins me today as he does each Friday. A week ago, Andrew, the three-judge panel in the U.S. Court of Appeals 11th Circuit released its opinion in the second appeal of the Georgia State University E-Reserves case, a closely watched copyright lawsuit over fair use that has been going on for more than a decade now. Give us your take on the decision. 
Well, anticlimactic is the word that I would use to describe it. And at the same time, it was entirely what I expected. And that may be the biggest surprise of all on this decision, because the one thing about this case uh, is that it is almost never gone according to plan. There's always been a twist along the way. So it's been a long time. I'll just offer a little refresher here. I'll back up and remind our readers this what this case is about. The GSU E-Reserves case, as we call it, was first filed back in 2008, April of 2008, by three academic publishers. And it alleges that Georgia State University administrators were systematically encouraging their faculty to offer students unlicensed digital copies of course readings, these, of course, known as E-Reserves, as a no-cost alternative to these traditional licensed course packs. In 2012, Judge Arinda Evans first ruled against the publishers, finding the GSU's copying was protected by fair use. The publishers appealed. In October of 2014, the 11th Circuit reversed for the first time. They sent the case back to Evans with instructions for her to rebalance her four-factor fair use analysis in what they said was a more holistic manner and to give the fourth fair use factor, which is effect on the market, additional weight. Evans did that, but in 2016, she once again found that GSU's copying was fair use, and that leads us to the current appeal decision, which came down last Friday afternoon. Uh, and why I say it was anticlimactic is because when I saw the decision, my first reaction was 25 pages, and in fact, only the last 10 pages are an actual discussion of the case here. You know, we waited almost 16 months for this 25-page decision. And remember, Evan's first decision in the case was over 350 pages. The first appeals decision was over 120 pages. But in just 25 pages, uh, a second three-judge panel of the 11th Circuit unanimously sent the case back to Judge Evans, who, if the case proceeds, is now going to get a third crack at writing an opinion that just might pass judicial review here. And while on its face, winning the appeal is a victory for the publishers in this case, not the least because they get to throw out Evans' uh, order for the publishers have to pay GSU's attorney's fees. So that's $3.3 million right there. In reality, that the case is now back right where it started, which is with Judge Evans, I think that's kind of a loss for publishers. So you think this win in court is a loss for the publishers. What about the uh, appeals court opinion in that 25 pages makes you think that? So the appeals court overturned key part, two key parts, I'll say, of Evans's decision and its ruling, both of which I think were entirely expected because they were brought up rather strongly by one judge at the hearing last July. That's Judge William Pryor, who happens to be the same judge who wrote this opinion. Basically, when the court sent the case back to Evans for the first time in 2014, they instructed her to just rebalance the four-factor fair use test to give more weight to the fourth factor, which deals, of course, with the effect on the market, as I had mentioned before. But what Evans did in her second decision, her remand decision, was she redid her entire fourth factor analysis. And she looked at things like pricing and actual revenue that the, that the licensing had brought in. And that, the court held, was incorrect. That was wrong. Uh, the court, in its first appeal decision, had actually affirmed that Evans' fourth factor analysis was, for the most part, correct. And they didn't give her latitude to redo those analyses. They just wanted her to sort of weigh it more when she did her entire fair use analysis. Um, so rather than just tallying up the factors, in other words, three fair use factors might augur for fair use, but because one factor is so important, it might tip the scale towards infringement. And that's opposed, as opposed to saying, you know, rather than three to one, a factor like market harm, one factor might be the whole ball game. So in this decision, the court ordered her to revert back to her original findings on that fourth fair use factor, market effect, and to, again, just give that finding more weight in her overall determination. Which brings us to another issue the court had with her. She still used math 
to tally up her four-factor analysis. For example, she noted that in her second, this is in her second decision, she noted that she gave the fourth factor more weight, which the court instructed her to do, but she put a number on it. She said that the fourth factor counted for about 40% of overall analysis, and the court said no. It has to be holistic, and you know, who knows what that really means in practice. But I understand why the court rejected this, because anytime a judge puts a number in an opinion, it becomes a standard, right? So if Evans said, you know, I counted this factor for 40% of my decision and the appeals court upheld it, well, then future courts will assume that 40% is the standard in similar cases. But more to the point, it's problematic, I think, because you can't really quantify a purely analytical decision mathematically, right? If I told you that Halloween accounted for 40% of my decision to order pumpkin spice with my latte, what the heck could that even mean, right? Well, it means you have bad taste in coffee, but well... <laughs> <laughs> well, in this particular case, it's a fair question. And so where do you see the loss then in this appeal decision? Sure. So I think the most important part of the ruling here actually went against the publishers because the appeals court actually affirmed Judge Evans's decision not to reopen the record in this case. Now, our listeners may recall that after the first appeal, way back in 2014, when the case went back to Evans for the first time, the publishers asked that the record be refreshed with the most with a list of the most recent online course readings assigned by GSU professors from the most recent academic term. You know, and that was going to give everyone a better sense of GSU's ongoing practices and what was really happening in the market. But GSU said, hey, no way. That essentially would be a whole new trial. And Evans agreed and in the end rejected the publisher's motion. Now, the appeals court held that she was within her rights to deny the publishers here. And I have to say, to me, that seems like a dagger to the heart of the publisher's hopes in this case, because it means that Evans is once again going to rule on the very same evidence that she's already found twice supports a finding of fair use. So I look at it this way. Clearly, Judge Evans thinks the bulk of GSU's copying in this case was protected by fair use. Whether you think that's right or wrong, that's clearly where she is. Now, she may have made some errors in expressing that, but I think we can infer from her first two rulings, she's leaning towards fair use. And that being the case, does anyone on the publisher side of this case really think it's wise to give Evans a third crack at this? Well, that's what happens. The 11th Circuit opinion does send the case back to the district court for a third ruling. What do you think happens now? That's the question, right? So I think you actually see a settlement. To me, this is the perfect chance to dismount, right? You have a win at the appeals court, and you can actually point to at least one clear legal benefit from the case, and that's that you, know, you just can't add up fair use factors mathematically and you know come up with a ruling. You, know, you have to take into effect more nuanced things like market effect, and you have to weigh those things more in a fair use decision. And also, maybe you get away without paying GSU's legal fees. So that's a win here too. So again, if you're the publishers, do you really want Judge Evans taking a third bite at this apple? And look too, it's been 10 years. We're talking about 10 years later, and the sky hasn't fallen. Right? The concern was that if GSU's practices became widespread, that they'd impact the incentive for publishers to publish. And well, the case has gotten GSU to change their practices. And frankly, I feel like the case should have been dropped at that point, way back in 2009, when Georgia State first amended their e-reserve policy, and they won a protective order that pretty much changed the entire face of this litigation. Ever since that moment when GSU changed its e-reserves policies and won that protective order, to quote James Grimmelman, a Cornell law professor, the case has been a barely mitigated disaster for publishers. Uh, and after this decade of costly and contentious legal fighting, Friday's ruling suggests that there's really not much left for the publishers to salvage in court. You know, in his recap 
of Friday's decision, Kevin Smith, who's now the dean of libraries at the University of Kansas. And I think fair to say he's been a general thorn in the plaintiff's side throughout this litigation. I think he actually got it right. He said this, you know, the big principles that the publishers were initially trying to gain here have been lost. There's not going to be a big sweeping injunction. There's not going to be any broad assertion that e-reserves always require a license, that the library community has learned that copying for nonprofit educational use is actually favored under fair use. That's been upheld by the appeals court now. You know, the best that publishers can really hope for here is a split decision and the chance to avoid paying GSU's legal bills. But the real victory, Smith writes, is that fair use you know, those decisions have already been won by the libraries. I, I think he's right there. I think he's got a good point. So one of the things that you've written about, Andrew Albanese, and we have talked about on this podcast over the years, is how the publishing business is changing. It's changing fast, and it is a lot faster at that change than the speed at which the legal system moves. When we look back years from now, what do you think the legacy of the GSU case will be? So to be the legacy of this, of this case is going to be that I think it's going to be remembered as one of the last lawsuits of what I think is, is a bygone, almost bygone era, which is publishing's digital transition. Back when this case was filed in 2008, there was a lot of fear about what digital was going to bring for the publishing industry. You know, you, you had the Google suit going on at the same time. You know, I'm sure we all remember that. And of course, you know, smartphones were still new. You know, digital was just taking off. You know, but as we've talked about a lot on this show in recent weeks, that fear is now gone, or at least close to gone. So the Georgia State suit, I think, was at least understandable in 2008 when we didn't really know how the digital future was going to unfold for publishers. You know, why it wasn't dropped earlier, I don't know. Uh, but I don't think you're going to see a lot more suits like the Georgia State suit or the Google suit, for that matter, anymore, because the industry is now solving these issues through business solutions. And the fact is that, no, universities don't want to spend time and resources having librarians scan books and put crappy PDFs on servers and then monitor those servers and monitor, check them each semester and take them down and have their faculty do fair use checklists. I mean, that's no way to run an educational system. Whatever the future looks like, that ain't it. So, you know, I'll turn to Kevin Smith again, who in his latest post, I think, puts the suit in proper perspective. You know, the saddest thing about this case, he writes, is that after 10 years, it continues to chew over issues that seem less and less relevant. Library practices have evolved during that time. Publishing models have changed. Open access and the movement towards open educational resources have had a profound impact on the way course materials are provided to students. So the impact of this case, ultimately, the final decision, if we ever get one, probably going to be negligible. I think that's a pretty good assessment from Kevin Smith. I think it's on target. So I, I think the next move in this case really should be a settlement. And I think it's time to just you know mend fences and get back to business. On this podcast, at least, we will get back to business next week. Andrew Albanese, Publishers Weekly Senior Writer, thanks for joining me today on CCC's Beyond the Book. My pleasure, as always. Making copyright fit for purpose for the digital world is a popular undertaking for governments around the globe. What are publishers doing to ensure their voices are heard in legislatures across Europe, Asia, North America, and elsewhere? At Frankfurt Book Fair earlier this month, Mikhail Coleman, president of the International Publishers Association, told my CCC colleague Michael Healy that the critical element is perception of value. I would say overall in the copyright discussion, it's linked to a much broader discussion, and that's the value of publishing. Um, if the value of publishing is more broadly appreciated and recognized, the copyright discussions are easier. And I think that's an area where we also should all invest in.
right. whether you are a trade publisher or a literary publisher or an educational publisher or a science publisher. I mean, if the, the products that we deliver, our books and articles and, and databases, don't have that appreciated value, then the copyright discussions are becoming much more complicated. Publisher Voices Raised for Copyright, next on Beyond the Book. Beyond the Book is produced by Copyright Clearance Center. Our co-producer and recording engineer is Jeremy Brisky of Burst Marketing. Subscribe to the program wherever you go for podcasts and follow us on Twitter and Facebook. The complete Beyond the Book podcast archive is available at beyondthebook.com. I'm Christopher Keneally. Thanks for listening and join us again soon on CCC's Beyond the Book. 